Well, if you have your Bible with you this evening, please turn with me to the prophet of Nahum. The prophet Nahum. And if you need help finding where Nahum is, it's right after Micah and before Habakkuk. Prophet Nahum. We're going to be concluding chapter 1 this evening, uh, beginning in verse 15, and we will be working through the first two verses of chapter 2 this evening as well. Before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, let's go perform it together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this evening thankful for this word from the prophet Nahum. We thank you, Lord, for your great uh, sovereignty, even, Lord, the various attributes that you've showed us in this wonderful book thus far, your wrath, your anger, your jealousy, your kindness, your mercy, your comfort to your people. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless us as we consider these verses this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Nahum, chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Hear now the very word of God written for you and for me today. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall pass no more through you. He is utterly cut off. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may he add his blessing to the reading of it to us. Well, beloved Christ, the Almighty God doesn't play around with sin. We know that well. He doesn't play around with those who do evil. And it's true that, that he is patient with his people, and he is patient with with the wicked. However, his patience doesn't last forever. When God comes against evildoers, he does so with decisive and swift and thorough action. And this is what we've seen in Nahum's warning of his coming judgment against Nineveh and their coming doom as God pronounced a woe against the people of that great city. Now, if you recall, Nineveh had gone into their war room, so to speak. They were conspiring and plotting against the Lord. They thought that they could somehow, someway, come up with a foolproof strategy to defeat God and to bring Him to shame. But how foolish they were. For no one can defeat the living God. After He spoke of and described His mighty power and His wrath in detail, he then promised that he would bring an utter end to their plans. It didn't matter what they were thinking about. It didn't matter what strategies they had come up with. None of them would work. All of them would fail. He would bring an utter end to them. They didn't stand a chance. 
God sits on his throne in heaven and laughs at them. And in addition to their strategizing, Nineveh had another poisonous problem. There were wicked counselors in their midst who tried to stir up God's people in Judah to intimidate them and to raise doubts in their minds regarding God's true intentions toward them, as well as his ability to defend and deliver them from the Assyrians when they came. No one else has been able to stand against us, neither will you, even with your God, Ramshaka said. And though Sennacherib and his army were arrogant in their conquest, though they thought that they were safe because of their power and their number, God would cut them down like grass. He would bring them to nothing, and even more, he would make their fame and the memory of them in their wicked might fade away. They would be remembered no more. And this coming judgment was to be a terror to proud Assyria. It was also to be a great comfort to God's people, and indeed it was. For God promised that he would do what? He would break the yoke from their necks. He would burst their bonds into pieces. Their chains would be gone. They would, they would be set free. What a beautiful gospel proclamation. And what a wonderful pointing to what Christ would do. And has done for his people. There is freedom in and through Jesus Christ. There is life in and through Christ for all who believe and trust in him in true faith. And there is also great hope and peace in the midst of despair in this gift of God. And this is what Judah needed to hear. And this is what we need to hear tonight as well as we consider this text, we're going to look at God's call to his people to look up and to see the messenger of peace in verse 15. His words to Assyria in chapter 2, verse 1. And God's promise of restoration in chapter 2, verse 2. So look with me at verse 15a. We read there, Behold on the mountain. The feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Now this word, behold, it means to look. Look up and see that your redemption is near, was God's message. Lift up your heads, which if you think about that, that was a very poignant statement. Those were very poignant words as the people were burdened in bondage, heavy necked so to speak. Heavy-hearted as they went through such great trial and trudged through affliction under the hands of the Assyrians. But the great bond-breaker has comforted his people with the promise of freedom. And here, with this simple yet important word, behold, he adds to that freedom great hope and peace. Now, how do we see that unfold? Well, every day that Sennacherib prevailed brought bad news to Judah. Now, it wasn't comforting or good news. The more Sennacherib was victorious, the worse it was for them. But Nahum says, look up and see who the messenger 
who brings good news. Look up on the mountains of Judah. Look and see the, the feet of the messenger of peace. Nahum's words here are an abbreviated form of those that Isaiah used in Isaiah 52, verse 7, where he spoke of the beauty of the feet of messengers of salvation. He said there in verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Now on the one hand, my friends, in biblical days, one could say that feet were beautiful and maybe even they lacked that beauty in those days because they walked and ran in the dust and the dirt to get to places. But yet, we see that even though they were quite filthy until they were washed, nonetheless, Isaiah was right to ascribe beauty to them because of the message that they brought. Messengers would run from the scene of battle across the hills to Zion with the good news of salvation, with the good news that God reigns. And these messengers prefigured the evangelists who would announce the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul also speaks of preachers being sent to proclaim this good news in Romans 10.15. How welcome our message is to those that see their misery and their danger by reason of sin. Now as we arm ourselves with the full armor of God, remember how Paul says that we are to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6.15. The good news of the gospel not only brings us peace with God, peace to our hearts, and peace with one another, but like the sturdy sandals of Roman soldiers, it also prepares and protects us for war against evil. You know, and sometimes it's, it's important for us to grasp this true peace in all of its wonderful facets. Because on the one hand, it is Rightfully and, and hugely important that we understand the peace that Christ has purchased for us and has accomplished for us and has brought about in relationship and reconciliation with God. But it's also right for us, also in this very word, to see how peace prepares and protects us for war against evil. Nahum says the good news is really summarized well in the word peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which doesn't only signify the end of hostility, but also return to abundant life and well-being. God's people in Judah would experience this physically, but also primarily spiritually. Christ's promise and has even given us abundant life in Him, hasn't He? And, and this isn't your best life now, type of garbage. But it's abundant life fueled by Christ. Remember John 10.10, 10, where Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. 
So Nahum goes on in verse 15 to encourage Judah to do what God had called them and appointed them to do. Really to do and to live and to live to live and to practice living in a life that is truly alive, free from bondage. As they were to go back to their normal religious practices. Now keep in mind that during times of crisis and oppression, that the celebration of the temple feast it was difficult or maybe even impossible. And so Judah was to return to them. The vows that they previously made should now be fulfilled. The people were to testify that God was the author of their deliverance. And that the redemption which they had obtained was by his hand and his hand alone. As the psalmist said in Psalm 116, 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. My friends, the congregation would bear witness to this, even in Judah. The Nahum gave good reason as to why the people needed to return to these things. What did he say? Look at the verse there. For the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This pass through should remind us of what we considered last week. It should remind us of how God promised to suddenly destroy the Assyrians. And so as the Assyrians had passed through many a nation with similar speed and devastation, they have comforted God's people that the Assyrians being cut off was another aspect and demonstration of peace. Isaiah describes this very well in Isaiah 29, verses 7 and 8. Isaiah 29, verses 7 and 8, where he says, The multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, or Jerusalem, even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her, shall be as a, a dream of a night vision. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams, and look, he eats, but he awakes, and his soul is still empty. Whereas when a thirsty man dreams, and look, he drinks, but he awakes, and indeed he is faint, and his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. So while God's people need to return to some sense of normalcy in life, knowing God's peace. Nahum went on to warn the Assyrians that they needed to shore up their defenses and be ready, for God had come before their face as their ultimate foe. God had come before their face through his instruments of judgment. And so we see in verse 1, the call for the Assyrians to prepare for Look at verse 1. He who scatters has come up before your face, man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. All military language. All man the fortress. Get the guard ready. Be ready for the attack. Right? Fortify. Bolster up what you have. And Assyria was used to being the scatterers, weren't they? 
They were used to being the powerful ones, who were always the conquerors, not the conquered. All that was about to change. God had arrived at their front gate, so to speak, in judgment through other armies. See how Nineveh, excuse me, how Nahum warned them, even encouraged them to be alert and ready. He's here. Get all your men in position. Shore up your weak spots. Watch and strengthen and fortify. Prepare for an attack. Right? As if they didn't already know this, here, here was some counsel. Here was some preparation for them. Get all these things ready. I'll even spell it out for you, right? To help you. Maybe to get you ready and taught. But that wouldn't help. And he knew that. For the living God was against him. And the in Proverbs 21, verses 30 and 31, we read there, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. And Isaiah 10, verse 12 says this, Therefore it shall come to pass when... The Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. That he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. And the glory of this haughty looks. If you remember, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, was quite the haughty. He was the arrogant one. Remember, he was the one who sent Rabshakeh to go and to be his messenger. To go to Judah and to intimidate them. To tell them... Your doom is sure because it's been that way for all of the other nations we've conquered. They claim to have gods and their, their gods couldn't do anything for them. And so surely your God can't do anything for you either. We're going to take you down in swift fashion. Here's your heads up warning. But as God worked through opposing armies, Nineveh would experience a similar fate that they issued to those they overrun. They would soon have conquered and scattered as appropriate descriptions of them. Now who was the scatterer that Nahum referred to? Well, similar to Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a reputation regarding his own conquests. He was notorious for dashing nations into pieces. Babylon was referred to as the hammer of the whole earth. In Jeremiah 50, verse 23. And indeed, in 612 BC, we see that the combined armies of the Medes and the Babylonians destroyed Nineveh. And shortly thereafter, the entire Assyrian army collapsed. Their entire empire gone. And Nahum goes on to tell Assyria what he will do for Judah, which was clearly a threat and a terror to Assyria. But again, a rich promise, a rich comfort and encouragement for God's people as God proclaims his cause for war. Look at verse 2. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. Beloved, these are words that Assyria never wanted to hear. They were so used to having other nations under their thumb 
They were so used to themselves thriving in dominance and lush living that the message of a divine act of full restoration of his people who under them, who were under them, it was very troubling and concerning. All of the false gods did and could do nothing to help people who worship them being dead. And on the other hand, these were wonderful words that Judah longed to hear. It was a terror to Assyria, but it was a great comfort to Judah. They longed to hear these words. They needed to hear that the living God was on their side and would fight for his people and bring down their enemies. Though God had chastened Judah for their sins, don't forget that Judah was in the place that they were. Judah was under Assyrian affliction for a reason. It was an act of chastening for their sin. It was an act of judgment from God. That his people would learn, that his people would repent and turn to him in true faith, considering what they had done. Though God chastened them, he would take Judah's pride away, Nahum said. And yet, what would restoring their excellence look like? The true and living God can, can restore what was once lost, can bring back vibrance to those in whom it withered away. God would restore the evidence and majesty of Israel. And this was the positive consequence of Assyria's destruction. And the final phrase of this verse here helps paint the picture of both why restoration was needed, as well as the beauty and the effect of such restoration. Look at that. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. Sennacherib ravaged them. He emptied them out and he ruined things. And if you think about it, what is true of what he ruined? What is true of this picture of vine branches? He ruined the things that give and maintain life for individuals, families, the community. But yet, in Amos chapter 9, verse 14, what does God promise? He says, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. So that which was destroyed, that which was gone, would bring good be brought back would be rebuilt and restored. And so Nahum prophesied things such as vines that would be restored. Their health, their safety, their way of life would be restored. But even more importantly, their relationship with God and their understanding of their dependence on Him would be strengthened and grow because that building back would not be done apart from Him. My friends, we desperately need the Lord. We desperately need to depend on Christ. For He is the true and ultimate deliverer and restorer of His people. In and through our Lord Jesus Christ, He brings to full and even to overflowing that which is empty. Remember the 23rd Psalm, verse 3. 
We are comforted by how God restores our souls. He renews us as with spiritual food and drink. He leads us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And in verse 5, God is our gracious host who provides the table for us and protects even as it is in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our heads with oil. Literally, he makes our heads fat with oil. God fills our cup, not just up to the brim, but beyond the brim, so that it overflows fullness and restoration through the care and the provision of our God. Remember also Peter's benediction in 1 Peter 5, 10, when he said, May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, he will do this. As he is our deliverer and restorer, he will do this. As he is our God, our protector, King, our Savior, He will do this. I'll leave you with this. In the midst of your burdens and trials today of this week, look up and have great joy as you see and you hear the messengers of peace, the heralds and the, the proclaimers of Christ. Like John the Baptist, we ministers aren't worthy to lose Jesus' sandal strap. We have been sent with a grand message of salvation. Take joy in the gospel that we proclaim and in Jesus who we declare. For Jesus is the peacemaker. He is the peace bringer. You have been delivered by the ultimate bond breaker. You have been reconciled to God through him. True and lasting peace with God and his people. Though he chastened you, also be comforted in Jesus delivering you, in his fighting for you, as he defeats his and our enemies. His victory is sure. But also know and be thankful that our God is the God of restoration. And what has the, the Lord's work of restoration looked like in your life? Remember that God doesn't merely deliver us and leave our wounds to fester or heal on their own, if they would heal at all. For in Christ, He is the one who truly restores and strengthens what was damaged and lost. He fills us, and He brings our cup to overflow from His bounty and His grace. God restores us in all of the ways that are truly needed and important for our well-being and for our relationship with Him in accordance with His will and for His purposes and glory. Sometimes we may hear the message of good news, we may hear the message of peace, and then we are tempted to try to come up with the terms of what that means in our own definition. Thank you, Lord, that you bring me peace. Thank you for what you have done for me in Christ. But now this is how I want it to go. This is what that means to me. 
But yet, we're not the ones that get to make the definitions. We're not the ones who get to set the terms. And we need to be thankful for that. For Christ does abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. Christ is the one who has been so bountiful in all of the blessings beyond what we could ever imagine. He provides for our every need in His perfect way, His perfect will, His perfect timing, and for His glory. And so we need to rest and be thankful in all of the ways that He restores us, in all of the ways that He provides for us, because He knows what we truly need, and He gives us those very things. And we come to Him and we are thankful for the bonds that He has broken, the yoke that he has split apart and that has fallen off of our necks. In him. Praise him. Praise God for his word.